Hello, everyone. What you're about to hear is a podcast we recorded a couple days ago that I'm now just getting around to editing. We had some audio hiccups in the beginning that I wasn't fully able to edit out. So I beseech you to either power right through them or skip ahead a minute or so. The audio does get better, but I think our content here is pretty good. We do a deep dive on the tax bill, probably the deepest into the weeds we've gone so far on any um, singular policy. We also talk about the election in Alabama. We talk about net neutrality. And then we have a fun debate about Bitcoin. Uh, I really enjoyed recording this. I, I think you guys will like it. But between the time of us recording that podcast and me blathering into a microphone right now, the Virginia State Legislature flipped from Republican to Democrat by one vote, which means one person turning out to the polls likely enabled 400,000 Virginians to gain health insurance. It's easy to be cynical about politics in this day and age, but I bet there's 400,000 people who would beg to differ. And with that, here we go. That while we breathe, we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt, and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Hello. You people know a lot about trucks. From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's Politics and Bros. Maybe we'll start thinking about taking their press credentials away from them. What the hell is going on? Well, hello there, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters. I do hope I can say hey, comrades and friends. And thank you so much for checking out yet another fantastic episode of Politics and Bros. Skippering this podcast schooner and coming at you from the studios of my apartment in Old Town Alexandria. My name is Ryan Teichler. And joining me from the Federal Hill neighborhood of Baltimore, Maryland, it's Michael Mon. Well, hello there, Michael. Hello, Ryan. I almost forgot where I lived. I was expecting Pigtown for a minute. Well, the artist formerly from Pigtown. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that, yeah. that might be how I uh, have to announce you going forward. Um, so we haven't potted in about a month, which who knows if that's going to be our new cadence, but good googly moogly. We got a lot of, um, lot of news to get into. Um, as we were talking just a second offline, like the three things I want to touch on, I think, are the Senate tax bill that's gone into it, – it hasn't really gone into committee because it's closed doors, but whatever. Um, the shocking election result in Alabama, and then the net neutrality ruling from the FCC today. Um, I think that should should do it, and maybe if we have some time can make fun of – Paul Ryan, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. So, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let's get into the tax bill. Yeah, yeah. Let's start with the tax bill. So, like, just off the bat here, Matt Iglesias did a pretty good job of this during, like, the Weeds podcast when they talked about this. But it was kind of buried toward the end, and uh, I think it was kind of burying the lead. So, like, the, the, the idea is, like, if you think of major pieces of legislation, like the once in a generation, once every 10 year piece of legislation, like we a lot of times like forget the first principles. And the first principles of, of big legislation is the underlying thesis to address like big, big legislation is supposed to address like a big problem in the United States. So if you look at like, the Affordable Care Act, the thesis was there's too many people in the United States that don't have health insurance. So they wrote a bill to address that. If you look at George W. Bush, the Patriot Act was, uh, you know, we're way too vulnerable. We're way more vulnerable than we thought to terrorist attacks. So we have to write a piece of legislation to, you know, to help us be more vigilant. Now, anyone could argue, like, I would argue the Patriot Act went too far and Obamacare didn't go far enough. 
But, like, both pieces of legislation actually did and addressed, like, the underlying thesis of, of what it was about, right? The, mm-hmm. the weird thing about the Senate legislation, the, the Senate version of this bill, is, like, its underlying thesis is essentially that, like, rich people who passively invest in large companies aren't making enough money. So, like, th- this is probably the biggest piece of legislation that the Trump administration can pass. So just imagine you're a lawmaker being like, you know what? We lost some, but God damn it, we brought this one home. Like, we made sure rich, passive investors in big companies will make more money. Like, it's just the most, most bizarre thing I've ever seen. Right. So to, to kind of piggyback on your idea of what sort of problem they were trying to solve, I think when they uh, initially started down the road of making um, tax reform one of their uh, central goals to this sort of two-year run of Congress was that they said that tax reform in any sort of meaningful way hadn't been done since the 1980s and that you know the economy has changed and they need to address what they considered uh, problematic loopholes that are, are being abused and aren't really uh, beneficial for the, uh, the economy. So that, that they kind of posited that as their idea is that we need tax reform, not necessarily uh, tax cuts, and that whatever tax cuts uh, they produce in the bill will be offset by all these loopholes that shouldn't really be in there in the first place and people are simply just abusing. This is, you know, we have cottage industries of people that are looking for tax hole, tax loopholes instead of just paying the appropriate tax and everything's fair. Now, the problem with, and that, you know, that's a perfectly reasonable sort of idea that that's more come of like the, the broad the base aspect of, of tax policy, right? Right. Now, once they've gone down this road, what, what totally contradicts that sort of straightforward pitch to the American people is that they have, uh, you know, in their like backroom dealing where they marked up the bill right on the floor and ended up passing something with <laughs> and they had handwritten notes in the uh, right in the index or uh, on the margins. Right. The, the 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 corporate business world freaked out because they. Uh, they, they left in, I guess, um, the alternative minimum tax for businesses at the 20% rate that they were cutting uh, the corporate rate from 35% to 20% on, in the final bill. And they freaked out because this was going to generate more revenue <laughs> than, they had, than they had expected, something like $385 billion. But the, the reason that's, that's interesting is because the whole idea was that if you're doing this sort of reform, we're getting rid of all loopholes and everyone just ends up paying this 20% rate. But the people that had uh, used enough uh, of these loopholes to, to lower their effective tax rate below 20% freaked out and said, that's not fair, we have to pay the 20%. So it, under, it undermined their entire point was that you know taxes are way too high, but people are using these loopholes. So they basically actually wrote something that got rid of the loopholes and they were like, oh, God, we've gone too far. <laughs> so, like, we, we texted about this earlier. Like, remembering when, like, during Obamacare passage that Obama and, and a lot of his top lieutenants went, you know, on the talking tour to Stump that says, like, you know, if you can keep your doctor, like, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, right? Mm-hmm. They got that wrong. That was a piece of policy that they just – missed in their own bill it's a complex bill but like they legitimately thought that like if you like your doctor you can keep it under the ACA and that was a huge scandal right but that's like a really small part of what the ACA does but like the whole premise of this tax bill is being sold as a middle class tax cut but right. it's, the whole thing's a lie. Like, so, so like, there's a huge scandal of Obamacare under one small policy that they got wrong. But the, the whole thing's a lie on this one, and they're going to get away with it. Yeah, I mean, Trump's final push has been to bring up sort of middle-class families and 
have them speak about how great they're going to have at Chris, you know, their Christmas break with their Christmas bonus from this tax bill. But you're right. I mean, I think like they, they reached a uh, tentative deal before Marco Rubio is attempting to undermine it, that the corporate rate will go from the 20% to 21%, but that the marginal income tax rate at the top from 39% will go down to, I guess, 36 or 37%. So that's a benefit that will only apply to the people that are wealthy enough to earn that. Whereas they could have taken that 1% change in their, their two bills from the corporate rate and just applied it towards the lower brackets where both rich middle class and, and uh, low income people all would like earn that, that tax cut. See the problem, like if you lower the lowest bracket rates, everyone benefits from that, including rich people because they also earn $25,000 in the year and then they earn more on top of that, you know, but if you only lower the very top bracket, then the, you know, the lowest uh, fraction of uh, people that earn income will, will get that benefit. So you're right. Like they, they keep trying to say, no, this is a middle income tax cut, but then like all they do <laughs> is focus on the top percent. And I want to uh, also address that. Like they, they can, uh, Trump makes this pitch a lot that we really need this tax cut for, for growth or economic growth. Of course, he then will often tweet about how the stock market is at an all-time high and unemployment is at an all-time low, and he should be given credit for it. So it kind of undermines the argument that we need these tax cuts for growth. But why would you build a tax cut for growth that uh, gives, you know, repeals the uh, the uh, inheritance estate tax? I mean, that that's not a, a sort of pro-growth initiative. You know, that's the the idle rich being able to continue not doing anything in the economy. So it's like all these sorts of add-ons to this tax bill where these aren't really pro-growth. I mean, some of them obviously are, but others aren't. And then many of these aren't, you know, middle income tax cut and any sort of individual income tax cuts that are in the bill expire anyways, because they want to make sure the corporate tax cut rates are made permanent. And then Somewhere down the line, there will be enough pressure on Congress that they have to make individual income tax cuts permanent because it's totally unpopular to have our uh, rates go up even further in the next four or five years. So that's another way that the, their priorities are definitely skewed towards uh, corporate income tax. I mean, corporate tax reform. Yeah. But like, so the thing I always go back to is like it's actually really easy to write a middle class tax cut bill. Like you can just take our modern framework and then say, if you make between X and Y, your taxes go down by you know whatever percent. Mm -hmm. Like that's the easy part, and then paying for it is the tricky part. Like you know, what do you cut? What do you raise taxes on, etc. But like they took the easy part of of a tax bill, and instead of focusing it on the middle class families. They did it to corporations and then just like tried to make the math work for everyone else. Yeah, I, I mean, they've, they've uh, doubled the standard deduction, which would mean uh, more middle income people that already itemized their deductions will just move to the standard deduction. So it may not change their tax rate, but uh, they've also eliminated the state and local tax or now it's going to be a, a $10,000 capped state and lo local tax deduction that you can use either for property tax or for your uh, state income tax, which I also don't like understand. Like, it, they're trying to make it like impossible for middle income people to utilize these sorts of deductions. But then that sort of savings is pushed to the top end with this marginal income tax rate cut. And, and it so, hammers, like, the upper middle – the suburban upper middle class, like, voter, which is typically conservative. Like, these mm -hmm. are the ones people get crushed. Like, my taxes might actually go down because I rent and I make, you know, between a certain amount of money. Like, so my bracket might go down in the co next couple of years. But, like, I, I can't imagine, like, the millennial – who's doing okay, but not like super wealthy. It, like I'm not the desired tax. You know, I, I'm not the guy who, who tax right. is supposed to be you know, uh, designed for. 
Yeah, but it would impede your upper mobility because the day you decide to buy a house to try to build equity, you're not going to get those sorts of property tax breaks that uh, previous generations had. Right. So <laughs> whereas the people that are already very wealthy are going to have expanded wealth <laughs> due to these these breaks. But the, the other thing I find fascinating about this like elimination of state and local tax deduction is that there's also a sort of like conservative philosophy where the federal federal government taxes you way too much and you know the, the the federal bureaucracy is way too large and we need to you know reduce it and we should shift this sort of burden to the states and states can provide these sorts of functions for their community well by eliminating that deduction that puts a lot of pressure on high tax states to lower their tax rates while simultaneously you're pushing the burden of providing these sorts of services onto the states where they're going to need revenue to sort of provide, you know, government uh, service in their communities. So how does that math work, Ryan? Like, no, it, it doesn't. It how do you push all this pressure? And so like I, I see these, these sort of like squawk box CNBC types that are like, well, good. Maybe maybe New York will feel some pressure to lower their state income tax, and it's like, yes, they they likely will because of uh, you know people maybe you know move out of state because they see that their total aggregate tax bill goes up. But that just means that a they can provide less services on their own, and b the federal government has less revenue to provide services for the country. So it's, <laughs> I mean, that has to be your end goal, and stop saying that. No, we're just going to we think this is better provided by the states because yeah. that doesn't work that way. No, you're exactly right. And that, that kind of piggybacks on my opening soliloquy. Like the Republicans don't actually think like the big problem of our time is like passive investors are making too much money. Like this is a starve the beast tax cut. So they can mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the chess match is. You know, they they cut all this revenue from the government and even like the Republicans owned um, analysis centers have said this is going to be like a massive you know, increase of the debt. You know, their, their pivot is going to be to cut the social safety nets. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, no, like, I mean, so like Medicare and Medicaid, like Medicaid, like these are administered at the state level. So like they're going to get crushed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Social Security is the other the other big one they'll they'll have to go after. Correct. But that's I mean the the you know uh, Medicare and Social Security like when you look at your W two or whatever like your yeah, your, your pay stub <laughs> you pay you yeah I mean so it it may, maybe our taxes aren't paying enough towards it. But the idea is that we are paying towards this, so, so it shouldn't just go away. Like we are, like currently as, uh, you know, earners and the primes of our earning capacity, we are subsidizing people that have come before us. But they also put into this, you right. know. So and then, like we expect the next generation to put in for us when we get right. You know, yeah. Gray. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the the Democrats are pretty good at ratcheting in you know to the left and building entitlement reforms and entrenching them entitlement programs and entrenching them and the right feels it's their job to just to not actually shrink the deficit but instead blow a hole in the deficit where they have to build excuses so that when the next progressive comes in office they'll they'll you know stomp their feet and say no we have to tackle entitlement reform look at how big the debt is i mean so this is the sort of game they play when you say starve the beast. They they want a big deficit so that you have to reduce total government spending. Of course, that never applies to our uh, defense contracting community. You know, they love saying defense spending, we support our troops, but we're not really talking about paying our troops more or hiring more troops. We're talking about like Boeing. Like, <laughs> so. Right. Like, so I think we're in, in agreement then that like the Republican Party is a bunch of hypocrites when it comes to debt. Right. Yes. <laughs> like, they're they're just they're lying. One would say. Yeah, I mean they they built in 1.5 trillion dollars to pull off their cuts, but made their in, the individual in, income tax cuts expire halfway through, 
because they're going to be the popular component and the math works if they expire halfway through. But they're suggesting they'll make it permanent because of that pressure, which means the actual deficit created by this bill will likely be double what it is in 10, 10 years <laughs> and obviously much and obviously much larger in the long term. So, well, uh, let's pivot from like one really unpopular, bad piece of legislation to a really unpopular, bad piece of policy, which is the FCC's ruling today to end net neutrality. So um, do you want to just give like a quick primer on what net neutrality is or do you want me to give a whack? Well, let's just say that if your podcast is buffering right now, it's because Comcast (laughs) has throttled our speed because we're not going to pay them anything to get the fast lane. I mean, I don't know that I can really explain it other than that. I guess net neutrality. I mean, there's there's like, you know, I don't know the, the whole uh, I mean, it's related to like old communication laws that governed, I guess, like, I don't know, telecommunications or something. But it basically implied that anyone that had, you know, any, any anything on the Internet gets the same speed by Internet service providers, regardless of what we you know what they are. So right now, Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Go, all those services they're getting the same speed from, you know, Comcast or Verizon or AT&T or whoever your internet service provider as just regular websites like the Washington Post, WordPress, Twitter, whatever, whatever. I mean, obviously there's like, you know, millions of different websites, but they're all getting the same speed and you and you can't charge individual content providers or throttle their speeds because they're taking up too much broadband. So when you like look at the statistics of like average internet use during the night, most of it's uh, Netflix. Probably a good uh, portion of it is Pornhub or something <laughs> like that. But in the future, because of this repeal, now internet service providers are allowed to throttle speeds on different content providers. And what's likely to occur, in my estimation, is one of two things. Either our actual internet service provider bill will go up if you request you know, some things to be faster, I suppose, or they will simply just go to Netflix and say, "Hey, do you, you know your customers like your fast speed, right?" Well, yeah, wouldn't it would be, be awful. A shame if, uh, it wouldn't be a shame if that away. goes away. Yeah, so they'll probably charge Netflix more, you know, to be like higher higher operating costs as a business, which they'll pass on to the consumer. So either we're going to pay more to do the same thing we've been doing before on the internet, you know, watching streaming video through our service providers, or we're going to have to pay through Netflix. So it's like. I, I think you, you were talking to me about this before. It was like people really hate, you know, Comcast, but love Netflix. So naturally, this administration does everything they can to hurt Netflix and help Comcast. It's <laughs> right, like right. joking. We call it another another win for the common man. Like, I, mean, I, I I don't really understand why this became a priority with this administration. The FCC chair right now is a former lawyer at Verizon. Yeah, is trying to pretend that he wasn't like captured by by the telecommunication industry and how he's not actually acting in their interest. But it's so clearly when they're like, you know, they've been lobbying for this and they got it. And there's a reason why, so that they can charge more towards these big content providers. Yeah, um, the, the other thing is like the vertical integration of the Comcast, AT&T, AT&T's Verizons of the world. It's like they now just like, they don't just own the you know cable infrastructure that gets you the internet. They now also control the content, a lot of content providers on the internet. So mm-hmm. basically they could just say like, well, we own these properties, be it like, you know, CNN.com or Washington Post or, or whatever it is, whatever website. And they said, well, this is in the fast lane now because we own it and everyone else is in the slow lane. So they can kind of steer traffic to the direction they want based on who they own. Yeah. And I, I think like uh, Paul Ryan and others consider this, like there will be like free market solutions for this, but there's like not enough 
uh, competition within the internet service provider uh, industry. Like, yeah, it's you know, just most, based on economies. I mean, our, our like nations, like but most of the country doesn't really have more than one option for broadband. Right. So, like, I have there's to no- have Comcast. My apartment building is wired for Comcast. That's that's all I have. Yeah. So it's not like you can just pay with your, you know, you, you could switch providers and put pressure on them that way. Like if you have no option, it's either broadband or nothing. So it's it's one of those sort of like failures of the free market when they sort of develop these sort of uh, regional uh, monopolies, which we're allowing because of (laughs) repealing regulation. So, yeah, but uh, like going back to like what I was texting you earlier, it's like this can't be politically popular. Like what you said, like these monopolies, they don't, offer good customer service or competitive pricing because they have a monopoly model and therefore everyone hates them. Like try to call Comcast for a billing dispute where they overcharge you, which they did to me. Uh, So I've been down this road. Like it takes like 45 to 50 minutes to get anyone on the line to even, you know, address your concerns because they don't care. Right. Like it's the only game in town. So this administration is essentially, you know, backing these companies who are horribly unpopular. <laughs> like, these are the winners of this. Yeah, I, I mean, I honestly believe that Comcast's business strategy is to produce errors on your bill and hope you don't notice them. <laughs> like, I think they're like a Wells Fargo-run company. <laughs> right. And, when, and it, when, they, when they go out, which is always at the critical time in, like, a sports game, which is, like, the only reason to have cable anyway is so you can get live sports – it's not like you're going to get a refund on your bill. Like, no, of course not. <laughs> but um, let's pivot to more more happier news here. Um, an amazing Senate race was run and won by Democrat Doug Jones down in Alabama. Um, no one saw that. I mean, I guess people relatively saw this coming because the Republican candidate, Roy Jones, was so bad. Roy Moore. I'm uh, sorry, Roy Roy Moore, not Roy Jones. I guess. Not the not the boxer, no. Yeah. Sorry, I, I'm getting names all all confused. But like, for Democrats in in Alabama to vote in a Democratic senator, I mean, this is huge, Mike Mon. It's huge. Oh, it's totally huge. I. I, I guess, like, I mean, this is just sort of like, I mean, I, I think like 538 pointed out, like, you, you have to run a good campaign, and you also sometimes need to get lucky, but you have to run a good campaign, which I guess they did. I think, know, I D- think Doug Jones yeah, did. I, I really but, do think Doug Jones ran a good campaign. But but anyone that you know is afraid about you know running for political office in the future, you know, look, just look at the field of candidates Republicans put out there, and look at all the. Um, scandals that are going on within congress right now like you have a good shot just by default like if you if you stay in there long enough (laughs) these nut jobs will shoot themselves in the foot and obviously i don't want to like you know belittle the accusations against roy moore but i mean this is like the kind of things that can happen obviously and you know it happened at the right time for Doug Jones, because if this had come out any earlier, obviously Luther Strange or Mo Brooks would have been the candidate and would have won by probably 25 points. But that's not what happened. So Yeah, it's a weird confluence of events that got us to Doug Jones. So this is Jeff Sessions' Senate seat. Jeff Sessions was um, nominated and confirmed to be the attorney general from Alabama one of the reddest states in the country. So you mm-hmm. know, the Republican establishment thought like, well, this, this is safe. Um, right. The governor of, of Alabama appointed someone named Luther Strange, who's like, Luther Strange is thought of now as like this, like normal Republican because he's like kind of the consensus, you know, like Washington pick to, to take that seat. He's still like a current sitting uh, senator, but like, this is a guy who like he disagrees that like gay people should be married. Well, like, all right, he, he's so, not like, but like he he still would have won. Like, 
but like there's this weird like my point is there's this weird like oh Luther Strange was the guy all along like Luther Strange is a fucking asshole yeah I, I mean I don't really know him from anyone else but I know I think like Bentley the governor of Alabama appointed him to the seat I think to get him off his back because Bentley was being investigated for his own mistress scandal where he was using public resources yes. and was yeah, like exactly. sleeping like, with uh, Luther Strange so, was a state attorney general. Like, looking so, into this. Right, he was looking into this. So, he, he, you know, Bentley pulls him off the case and puts him in the Senate to, you know, to, to but, but ends up having to resign in disgrace anyways. So if Bentley hadn't been sleeping around with his mistress, Luther Strange would still be the attorney general and potentially a different candidate would have been put into the uh, put into the Senate temporarily or whatever. So that had to happen. Then Mitch McConnell backed Luther Strange and uh, put his super PAC funds into running a uh, negative advertising campaign against uh, Mo Brooks, Mo, yeah. Mo Brooks, which paved the way for Roy Moore to win that nomination. Then Roy Moore. <laughs> yeah, it's the craziest confluence, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, ch- chalk it up. Another win from the mainstream media fake news. They paid $1,000 to all those accusations, accusers and brought them down. We did it. Yeah, the, I mean, the liberal the media. Post, like, isn't it crazy? Like, the Washington Post sent, like, two reporters down there, and they were able to source it so well. So, like, this is another part, like, people like, pass up, like, Breitbart sent their top two, quote-unquote, reporters down there to, like, debunk these allegations, and they couldn't do it. No. And, Pro- and Project Veritas tried to ensnare the Washington Post with their own fake accuser and just got egg on their face because they they ended up just fact-checking. <laughs> <laughs> right. Shocking, the Washington Post actually has, like, a... And I don't know if that integrity and, and editorial policy. Yeah, that's I mean, I don't know if that story made it down to Alabama or not, but, and, you know, it was still a, a good sign to see that they're like they understand that they're under the microscope with these sorts of like investigative journalist and journalism reports. So it's good to see that they have the sort of integrity we've been expecting from The Washington Post forever. So, so do you think the Democrats and, and I don't think they have thus far, but, like, should they be spiking the football and, and being um, very optimistic? Obstructed towards the tax bill? Or? No, no, no. I'm talking oh. about, like, the electoral map of, of 2018. Because, like, Roy Moore is a bad candidate, even before, like, his alleged diddling of, of 14-year-olds. But, well, like, he, he never ran well in a very Democratic I mean, a very Republican state and like that, a good democratic candidate. Yeah. Beat him? Like how much, how much do you take away from this? Well, yeah, like a replacement level Republican probably wins that seat by 25 right. points. So obviously Roy Moore was a bad candidate and you like have to expect that within this rotting Republican party, there will be more bad candidates because this like wild section of the base is like really good at like primarying like normal Republicans and getting them out of elections. So there's always opportunities to run against like these sorts of, you know, creatures or whatever. But it's like right now, I think the polling, like the generic congressional ballot favors Democrats by 10 points, which suggests enthusiasm. That would be like a wave election. And whether they can take the Senate, which would require holding all of their seats yeah, that are up for grabs. It's a really plus bad prob- Yeah, plus probably will- winning Jeff Flake's uh, vacated seat coming up and a seat in uh, uh, Nevada. That would, that, that would be what it takes. But if you have that sort of uh, electoral shift plus, you know, n- maybe not – pedophilia but just like things happen along the way that you know if you get lucky that could happen and obviously i think the goal would be for the senate probably more like 2020 but the house absolutely is in play like i think the house is it's going down like that you know this republican congress is is just producing bad bill after bad bill and paul ryan announced that he's uh 
probably not seeking another term and retire. He's too exhausted. I'm not <laughs> too sure from what. This is the first time he's had a Republican president that will sign his bills, and he's actually had to govern, and it's exhausting for him. Yeah, let's, let's talk about Paul Ryan. Just just leaving Alabama aside, because like, Alabama's a weird place to, to poll, um, or even like to give demographically. No, like, yeah, well, that's <laughs> But, like, demographically, it's, like, a weird place. But Paul Ryan, he's, like, kind of announced his retirement, but didn't. Yeah, like, I, I couldn't figure it out. I don't know if he's seeking re-election and, or not, like, or if his, he's his, trying to get re-elected, then he'll leave. I don't know. His spokespeople gave, like, the weirdest, most D.C., like, non-answer. Like, he's focused on pushing a, a bold conservative agenda. Like, that's not a denial that he's going to retire. But like, but in the words of Marco Rubio, let's put the bed the notion that he knows what he's doing, <laughs> or whatever. But like, like everyone thinks Paul Ryan actually knows what he's doing, but he doesn't. The the, the guy's supposed to be this like, you know, wonderkind policy genius for the GOP and, and conservative economic think tanks. But like he cannot write a bill that he can't write he can't write a bill and he can't whip whip votes unless right. it's like ceremonial just repealing Obamacare while Obama's in office. That's the only thing he could ever do. Yeah, and, and they voted on it like sixty times, knowing it it would be veto proof, um, or knowing that the veto would hold, not not veto proof. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but now that he's actually in charge of like the bills he decides to put on the floor and the ones they don't actually matter he doesn't know what the hell he's doing no i agree i mean you can see it uh a little bit more clearly in the uh, repeal and replace of you know a, what is it like a better way and then american healthcare. what you know all the different names for his different iterations of trying to do that but like i mean i guess his photo you know he would do these things about how there would be like uh you know, free market changes that would drive down costs through federal, you know, savings accounts and how much better uh, LASIK has become as a result of this, which doesn't really address like soaring drug costs or anything, like, anything that's like of like actual substance of why we have like high costs and why people are uninsured. And I don't, I don't know, but like he's been dying to, um, cut taxes and cut Medicaid since he was drinking out of kegs, and now he's exhausted by it. <laughs> His keg beer dream was to cut taxes on rich people so he could screw over, like, health care benefits and nutritional assistance for poor people. Um, oh, Michael, shit, I, I just remember this. Um, Bitcoin, you want to talk about Bitcoin? I know we didn't put this in the, in the rundown, but... Uh, I, <laughs> Behind the curtain to anyone who thinks we have a rundown, it's like a two-minute conversation before we record. <laughs> what, what do you What do you want to know about Bitcoin that you that you should invest all your money in it? I don't know. Um, so, no, it's, so a, like, it's a safe place to store your your money. That's all. But like, why aren't dollars the same thing? Dollars, uh, we have inflation. So if you uh, just keep your dollars in your mattress over time, they will be they will have lower purchasing power. Right, but the dollar is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. It's a it's a a debt note that the government gives. Um, Bitcoin doesn't have that sort of backing, so why should I trust it? It doesn't need that kind of backing. Uh, you trust that backing, which is why you have dollars. And I'm here to suggest. Maybe you shouldn't have 100% faith in a government willing to add $1.5 trillion to the debt just to give uh, rich people tax cuts. You know, there are going to be consequences to a government that finances itself that way because uh, you're going to have to print money or we're just going to, you know, I mean, it, these are inflationary effects if you, if you have policy that way. I mean, what? Bitcoin doesn't have that problem because it's a simple algorithm where there will only be 21 million Bitcoins ever in existence. They cannot print more. Yeah, so, but like, isn't 
doesn't that create a cliff in and of itself? Like, they, if you can't get more Bitcoin, then it's just a scarce commodity. It is a scarce commodity. You can always get fractions of those Bitcoins. In fact, it's very expensive to buy a full Bitcoin right now. I'm but looking like, at a monitor. It's I just, like, $17,213. Why couldn't I say my, my Wade Boggs rookie card is worth that much money? Um, yes, some baseball cards are worth a lot and appreciate over time. If is that your point? <laughs> yeah, but like, so are Beanie Babies. No, they can always make more Beanie Babies. It doesn't have the same sort of uh, mechanics behind it. It's much more akin to gold, where there is only so much gold on Earth, and there will never be more. Like, we cannot make more gold. We're currently mining for gold because there's gold out there, but we've we have a pretty good idea of how much there actually is. But, like, who's actually behind – like, the actual person who wrote the algorithm behind Bitcoin? Like, no one can answer this question for me, and therefore I have no confidence in it. <laughs> well, it was a, a 2009 white paper that uh, documented the idea of Bitcoin, and it was written by Satoshi Nakamoto, which is widely to be- believed to be a pseudonym of – multiple people. And so no one don't... knows. <laughs> the point is no one knows. But but currently like hundreds of uh engineers and software developers have worked on the protocol. Yeah, but like that... I don't want people like somewhere on the spectrum to like be the arbiters of global finance going forward. There is no arbiters it's a decentralized someone had to write the algorithm like who wrote the algorithm no one say who it is so, so w- what's happening is that you know there there is a consensus within the developer so what they have is like so, if someone wants to adjust the code behind the protocol but someone and, wrote it initially right and and it and it gets you know the the the, the tech behind it does get changed over time, but it requires like uh, you to put out your new code you would like, and then like anyone can criticize and, and, and debate it. So it it's sort of like crowdsourced, crowdfunded, like uh, open source code, which is you know I don't know why you suggest that to be like a bad thing. But the other thing is when people are upset with the currency, there's been things called forking. Where so now there's Bitcoin Cash, where they run a totally different uh, currency, but it originated from the original Bitcoin. So there's going to be like competing cryptocurrencies, and I guess if that's your point, that like why would you trust Bitcoin over one of these uh, competing currencies? No, my point is like that's why valid. Bank but... of America just just do that based on your liquidity. Well, Bank of America, it, it, there would be no reason for Bank of America to do their own blockchain decentralized currency. That's like very re- resource intensive. The idea is that there is a ledger of these Bitcoins that get, get moved around. So if I have one Bitcoin and I send it to you, the network of computers that are mining for Bitcoin will prove that that was a valid Bitcoin transaction. And it requires multiple yeah, but, but every, computers on the network to do that. Bank of America only has needs a uh, has a code tied to it. Like, Bank of America only needs to acceptance code. Right. So Bank of America only needs to do that for itself. It, you know, it like doesn't every online transaction you ever do like has a, an acceptance code by a bank. Right. And I mean the dollar is a digital currency. We we're already, you know, have moved but into it's that backed world. by the full faith and credit of the United States government that prints more money whenever they need it and has like, quantitative you know, easing uh, no, bullshit, bullshit. and federal you know, debt. You know as well as I do that a government is not like a household. A government can can outrun debt because it doesn't die, essentially. Like, like you could run that, on, that a, is, on a deficit. Like That, that is the, the idea of why people have faith in the United States dollar, but that is the same argument of why no one has confidence in the Venezuelan currency. So there yeah, are like poo-poo. 
yeah, there's there's good use cases of why people around like the world would rather store their wealth in Bitcoin than in their own currency, and then at the same time we'll be able to move it around the globe at ease. And it's like it's the same sort of thing that we've been talking about with net neutrality, where like we want like a censorship free internet, where not like one power broker can control what content goes fast. This is the same thing. Your money can go to whatever cause you want. Yeah, it, it, th- this is your this is your fault though. Like, <laughs> this is what North Korea can use or Russia to avoid sanctions. Like, a cryptocurrency is only the value that people give to it. Like, there's no underlying value to it. So, like, if there's no underlying value to the dollar. Yes, there is. It's the full faith and credit of the federal government as a debt note. There is no intrinsic value to the dollar. Right, there's no intrinsic de- uh, value to a piece of paper, but right. it, it is understood that it is a public debt to the United States. Yes, that is how currency works. The same with Bitcoin, suggesting that the dollar is somehow superior just because it's a di- like you've used it longer doesn't mean that that's accurate. So, so you're saying the. Crap I'm not saying you should States. invest your money in Bitcoin. I mean, you're you're better off buying shares of Apple than you are holding money in dollars or in Bitcoin, probably. But <laughs> lumpy mattress, Mike Bond, lumpy mattress. But I mean, you, you can't argue with the returns right now, and you can suggest it's a bubble. No, bubbles all are you great. Want. Bubbles are great as long as you time it right. I, I have no problem with bubbles. Oh yeah, no volatility is great, but. Let me argue – let me just say what happens if it's not a bubble? Like what happens if it just goes up and then instead of coming back down, it just stops going up and tapers off because enough people have adopted it and use it and it's you know worthwhile to their lives. The way uh, people purchasing cell phones went up parabolically, exponentially. You keep doing and then, and then it's over text today. <laughs> Cell phones and Bitcoin are two completely different things. Cell phone have a utility of being able to walk around no matter where you are in the world and be able to call someone else. Bitcoin is is either A, a means of exchange, and with the volatility, it can't be a means of exchange because the price you would pay for anything fluctuates so much, no one would ever do it. It is the best use case of blockchain technology that's ever been produced. It is a store of value that so far has only gone up. Yeah, but that's just it, one part of what currency is. is a it store can be. It can be liquid. It's not exchangeable. It can be. It can be transferred anywhere in the world instantaneously at a uh, a smaller price than uh, wire transfers. Do you think so it Kim does have ill likes that fact? Probably yes. <laughs> That's why that's utility. You're making my own point. Now, you're suggesting that's a bad thing because we can't sanction it, but that is literally the utility of it. I don't know. As everyone listening can see, like, I'm the skeptic so, and Mike Mon is it. Obviously, there, I mean, companies are developing applications to make it easier to flow in and out of Bitcoin. Square, the um, sort of, like, compete, comp- competitor to PayPal that's building these sorts of interfaces at different sort of like Starbucks and things like that. They are, uh, they've, they, they're working on uh, allowing you to pay in Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, things like that. That's the first no, step is again, trying like, to make that. Here's where you're wrong. Like in the, in the volatility, no one will ever pay for anything in Bitcoin because like well, vol- the right, relative one, price could change in three, three minutes. Okay. Well, I wish it was volatile. I would be making way more, but the CBOE has uh, created a futures market, and this week the CME has created a futures market. And since that happened, volatility has gone way down. And the reason why those futures markets are important is because companies like Square, they're going to need to buy Bitcoins so that they can test their software and they're, like, to, to use these applications, as well as when you're going to eventually buy your Bitcoins through a Square interface. Wait, 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 you're wait, not going to be – hold on, hold on, let me All finish. Right. When, when you eventually do that <laughs> – <laughs> they're going to be the ones providing you with Bitcoin. They're not going to be going onto the exchange to do that, but they need to be able to hedge the price of that Bitcoin against futures to like mitigate their risk. So, so far that's lowered volatility. And that's why I'm frustrated. I don't have 
Litecoin. <laughs> Sold all my Litecoin right before the big run. But no, now you're just explaining any sort of commodity market. Like, so you're saying like, oh, well, the airline industry needs yes. to buy oil. It's because, a commodity. Like, yeah. if, if the price of fuel goes up in the future, like, they don't know that, so they have to hedge it. Like, well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, but Apple's like going to get in. But, like, oil and jet fuel does something. It propels a plane. Like, so... There's, I mean, it, this is probably likely this this sort of blockchain technology and the protocols they've created and all the competing uh, initial currency offer ICOs is probably closer to like 1990 internet where everyone like thought this was a big deal, but at the time it was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, but in the yeah. in the future, you know, the next 25 years, it did change the world. So like, I'm fairly bullish on this sort of technology compared to like uh, the old way we did business. Um, that said, it's possible that um, in the same way there was a big bubble in railroad stocks in the 1800s and the bubble burst, but we were left with railroads across the country. And that's a good thing. This could be the, that, that could be the result. We could be just speculating on this price it bursts, but at the end of the day, we have all this blockchain technology, and the utility is there. It's just we paid seventeen thousand dollars for Bitcoin. So. Uh, well, let's leave it that, there and, and agree to I would, I would encourage you that if you invest in Bitcoin and you're worried about this sort of volatility and the and the, the big one where it just drops, maybe put a stop loss on your on your trades. So maybe I'll invite I'll invest in Litecoin <laughs> when it's really low and see if I can time the bubble. But, uh, you missed it. You missed it. I know. I might have missed it. Whatever. But it could be the biggest shorting opportunity in a lifetime. That's a that's a terrifying idea. What if it just keeps going up? I know. You're on the hook. Fucked. Actually, most of these exchanges they they short they they cut you off after seven percent. So if you short and it goes up seven percent, you just lose. You just you're out. You gotta well, do it again. Uh, what about the company that told you to short and it dropped sixty six percent of its uh, value? Well, I would have made. <laughs> I've made a 66% return. I don't, I don't trade options, though. All right. Well, uh, let's get the hell out of here, Michael. Do um, you want to post something on Facebook so the people like can touch us? Oh, sure. sure. Yeah, do something. You're a social media <laughs> guru. Gosh. Don't, don't trust me to do social media, cryptocurrency, anything, really. <laughs> All right. Well, um, good job, Michael. This was a fun conversation. I hope people enjoy it. Um, we'll do better the next time, but until then, bye-bye.